that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly You get stuffed with ravioli If your mama's a paisano You will have the world on a plate So see that you're born in Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your host, John Viola, and we're coming to you in the middle of what has been so far and what I promise you is going to be an incredible conversation about one of my favorite topics in Italian American history, which is Joe Colombo and the Italian American Civil Rights League. Because for those of you who listened to last week's episode, you realize that on Monday, June 28th, we saw the 50th anniversary of the second infamous Italian American Unity Day a rally put on in Columbus Circle by the Italian-American Civil Rights League, an organization created in the late 60s, early 70s by reputed mob boss Joe Colombo. And today I am joined again by the notorious POB, the Italian-American Wikipedia, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle, as we continue our conversation with the author Don Capria, who wrote the book Colombo, The Unsolved Murder, an incredible look at the story of not only Joe Colombo and his life and time as a leader of the Colombo family of New York's organized crime families, but also his amazing dedication to and work in and leadership in the Italian American community in the late 60s, early 70s. So we had the first part of the conversation airing last week at the 50th anniversary of Unity Day. And if you haven't already listened to that, I highly recommend you go back, first of all, for the context, secondly, because it's an amazing episode, and this is a conversation that, like I say, I'm really excited for us to be having. We discussed how the League was formed, why Joe Colombo was the sort of leader for the times, the impact that the League had on the community as a whole, and also on some important chapters in Italian-American history, in particular, the production of The Godfather, and uh, how much the League sort of quietly impacted that seminal film in Italian-American history. And as we were closing off our first segment, Don started to share with us a little bit about Joe Colombo's personal history, uh, this figure that we describe as a a Robin Hood, an antihero, a complex figure in Italian-American history. And uh, Don, you were saying how you see the murder of Joe Colombo's dad as sort of the formulative experience in his life and his life's work. So if you would, can we go back and, uh, and get into the conversation and share with us uh, why you have this thesis and, and a little bit about the personal history of the life of this very complex and very fascinating figure? Yeah, so, you know, there was a lot of power struggle happening post the Roaring Twenties when um, you know, they knew the liquor laws were going to change and uh, these guys had made a lot of money and now it was about, you know, claiming the territories. So Lucky Luciano and, and starting the, the first, the syndicate and then the commission, he wanted to create the five families. He wanted to get rid of the mustache peats, so to speak. For those who don't know, that was the more old school generation of organized crime leaders who believed there was a de facto leader and that was it. So while organizing this from the sidelines, his kind of five-year plan was to eliminate a lot of those bosses. And after Frankie Yale died, there was a guy in South Brooklyn that was a Yale supporter 
that was the name of Giuseppe Pirano. He was a mustache Pete era guy. He was just not going to compromise to anyone. He was not going to give up anything. And they wanted Profaci to become the leader of this territory. So the job was tasked to Anthony Colombo, which was Joe Colombo's father. He had an alias, Anthony Durante. And he assassinated this man. And about eight years after that assassination, which took place in 1930, there were still struggles between some of the guys that were below these bosses. And this used to happen a lot in organized crime, where in order to make people join forces again, people that committed acts of violence needed, it was was kind of vendetta crimes. We did bring that a little bit from Italy to here. And it was something that they wanted to do away with, but Joe Colombo's father was was assassinated in 1938, uh, along with a girl that he'd been seeing and made, you know, the front page of the Brooklyn Eagle, front page of many papers in Brooklyn at the time. And Joe Colombo was taunted with this. And his mother feared for her own life, left Gravesend, went to California, and Joe was 14, and he was going to stay. So he, he bounced around a little bit, mainly in the area of Bensonhurst. And, you know, to fast forward and get into, you know, where I believe he went after that, after he served in World War II, Joe started the family, and he, he was always mentored by a man that was lived around the corner from him in Gravesend, a guy that was involved in the organized crime, part of the Gambino crime family, uh, and it was, it was Carl Gambino. And many people didn't know there was a very close relationship between Colombo's father and Carl Gambino, and that Carl was getting it all. If you look at all the job history for Joe Colombo, a lot of it was related to Castellano and uh, you know, Pride Meat and all these different places he was set. Through, through Carl's guidance, and eventually him getting involved in the Profaci crime family, not the Gambino crime family, makes sense to me in this respect, that he wanted to find the men, and they were in that family, that would have assassinated his father. This was a vendetta for him that was never going to go away. Wow. That's really powerful to think about that. I find that, I guess I have some sympathy for men of a certain generation who get pulled back into this life and this cycle because it is really all that they know and it it does have an impact. I'm obviously not as great as losing your father to this kind of vendetta. You know, I think people don't understand when we talk about the mafia in retrospect, the older history of it. It changed, I suppose, in the maybe 70s, 80s when this became sensationalized and the media picked it up both in historical fiction, but also in their coverage of it. And, you know, you get like the Kefauver trials in the 50s and you finally get informants that start to speak and it becomes this theme and this genre for people, both intellectually and also in fiction. People don't understand that. So a guy like Joe Colombo's father is assigned a murder and carries it out and assumes because they believe so much in this system that that is like basically like a guy who's a truck driver getting assigned to a route and that's his job and there's not going to be implications years later that you you know he didn't do the wrong thing in that mindset right in this system he just performed his job and so they then get murdered for it soldiers yeah yeah we have guys that are our age you know and younger that are coming back from overseas that you know were tasked with murdering people and you know i have a lot of friends that are military and have served time and have been in these situations before and you know there are some that, that, you know, end up getting locked up. You know, we've seen there, there's a lot of guys that are being tried for war crimes. And you don't think of that. If you're going over there and you have a task and your task involves murder, you think you're protected underneath the rights of the UN and laws of war. 
Yeah. And here it was the same thing. You know, these laws were set up within these families and you were, you know, you were under the belief system that once you did what you did, you didn't have to, to pay for it. So let me just, just to clarify, you believe that Joe Colombo got involved in organized crime, if not knowingly, but subliminally to revenge or I guess, yeah, revenge his father's murder. Am I correct in that? You are correct. Wow. So you think had the father lived because he was obviously, he had a lot of talents that he may have gone on to maybe use those talents in a positive way in a non-criminal fashion. Yeah. Do you see that? I do. I, I think, you know, he was a Freemason. He was a Freemason. Joe Colombo was a Freemason. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you know why he became a Freemason? Uh, I think political. I think a lot of the people that he was with, a lot of the gentlemen, again, mentored by Carl Campino and some of the, you know, his father used to go to meetings at a uh, political club. Um, it wasn't in Gravesend. I think it might've been in Bensonhurst. Uh, I think there was always an attraction, even as a young kid to Italian. And, and there was a lot of Italian Americans that became Freemasons. You know, this was the need to belonging to, right? It's, it's something that we've seen in the psychology of a gang member, you know, uh, young men, especially young men that don't have come from a two parent home, always had this sense of a need of belonging to something. So, you know, Joe wasn't a sports guy. Joe was, you know, a talker and uh, someone that liked to see communities working together. He was a union organizer at the age of 18, I believe. Uh, he was a steward. So even when he started his first few jobs, he immediately, you know, rose to the occasion to say, well, I'm, I'm going to be the guy that's going to, you know, help direct all of these people and manage all of these people. So I, I think getting involved in groups uh, and being able to work with people as opposed to, you know, he's not an introvert, you know, so that, that's why, you know, from the Freemasons to potentially the gang. And then uh, even if you look at the timeline, it's one of the things I had too. you know, I have my, my boards when I'm writing, I'll say what you say on my thesis of Joe Colombo in 1967, five of the men that were involved in his father's murder, who were old by this time, were all killed within a one year period. Wow. Once that happened, Joe's involvement in community organization started to grow. I want to look at that timeline and believe there was some sense of relief, some sense of accomplishment, even if these guys just died by natural causes. I'm not even going to you know, claim that this was his, his own doing. It doesn't matter. The facts are, once these men were dead, Joe started coming out a little bit more. And then we see in 1970, by that time, you know, if he was the head of the crime family, the Colombo crime family, and this organizer of all these men and all these crimes, what mistake it is to come out and start speaking to the press and doing all that. It was, it was almost career suicide if his career is organized crime. It's just very interesting when you look at it on the timeline of what this guy was doing, you know, and his events. So many times I've thought to myself, that had the educational opportunities been better, mm. had Italian Americans been more bookish, um, had America been less stratified and close to us, so many of those guys who were extremely successful financially in the mafia or politically in the mafia could have had, I don't want to say legitimate businesses, like it's a joke, but they could have had real careers because their natural intelligence and talent were there. Yeah. There was just no, there was no 
with a lot of them, um, someone I knew who had a, a family member who was in, in the mafia and it destroyed, he wasn't killed, but um, he was on a kind of a secondary tier and it just absolutely destroyed the family. And one of his relatives said that, you know, when he was growing up in pre-war and immediate post-war America, he didn't see any other way to climb the financial ladder. He could have gotten a factory job. I mean, there was no way he was going to make it through high school. You know, like the family needed the money, those sorts of things. How was he going to get to college? He didn't even know about that. He didn't have the kind of grammar school education or high school education to get him there. But he was extremely ambitious and he was extremely talented. And the only place that he saw social mobility was through the mafia. So he used, you know, a, a, used all these tremendous talents that could have really done great things for society. He wound up using for, you know, and he didn't even, he wasn't even violent. He was more financial. He did a lot of fun. And it was just, um, you know, what, what a waste. We had so many talented people that could have done great things if, you know, if they had just, you know, I'm not trying to exculpate them, but I think a lot of these people got involved very young. Um, and once they got involved, there was no way to get out. And they got involved because, you know, kids do stupid things. And instead of studying for the SATs, they were running numbers. Well, the Farm League for crime is very alluring. You know, it's not like the Farm League for you to become a doctor. You know, everyone knows when you go to med school, you're going to spend all of this time, you know, working for minimum pay, building the student debt. And it just really seems like the wall is higher than Greenhaven Prison to get to the other side. But the Farm League for Crime is something where you're immediately going to make money. You're immediately going to gain respect. Um, so it's, it's much easier to fall into that, especially when you have a lack of education or a lack of access to get the funding to go for continuing education. You know, one of the things about prison is the paradox is that if you go through prisons and you start interviewing people that were involved in, in bigger crimes, let's say, you're going to meet some extremely talented criminal entrepreneurs. Now, to your point, if you were to have advanced them early in education, a good family structure and potentially continuing education, those same people would just be extremely talented entrepreneurs. So I don't even think that falls into a culture thing. I think that just falls into a socioeconomical place. Someone asked me why I thought that the John Gotti, flashy New York mafiosa had kind of um, evaporated. One I thought was like the RICO trials in the 80s and Rudy Giuliani, you know, some people love him, some people hate him, but you have to admit, whatever your stance is, that Giuliani broke the mafia in New York. I say to people, I think much, 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 much more of a factor was that there was more opportunity. There was education. So kids, people who were tempted to pursue that lifestyle because they had a set of talents and they didn't see a good way to use them. And the, the bad way was so tempting and worrying. There was so much money because, you know, for so many of these kids who had nothing growing up, that money was very, very tempting. And that's why I think even that kind of crime is more goonish now because the sophisticated members, the CEO types that ran these organizations are now actual CEOs. Yeah. Mm. And maybe that's why America is the way it is. But, you know, I think that that's such a factor. But, you know, I never, I never ever saw Joe Colombo in this light. And it's almost sad in a sense, mm. really, for what he, what he did politically. He had such talent. You know, just like The Godfather, 
The Godfather is a Greek tragedy, right? Like you were saying before, it's not, this is not a gangster movie. This is a movie about a father and a son and a family and the backdrop of having this gangster enterprise. But it was eerie to be reading so much. You know, I, I loved The Godfather and I, you know, I read the book and I read The Godfather papers. And then I started getting into more details from behind the scenes and um, actually consulted with a, a guy who was writing a book about The Godfather who did a major piece in Vanity Fair called The Godfather Wars, Mark Seal. And his book will probably be coming out in a few months called Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli. Give him a little plug, great writer. Um, getting into these, these details and then looking at the parallels, the parallels between The Godfather film and the Colombo crime family and then the parallels between the Corleone family and the Colombo family, it's, it's eerie. It's just there's so many things that are running right alongside one another. And maybe this one in the film happened first. Like I, I think of a scene where like Michael's outside with one of the gentlemen from the neighborhood came with the flowers and they have to fake hold the guns. And, you know, Anthony would tell me stories about you know, after his father's shooting where the FBI had come up to him and told him that, you know, they've marked you as next. We have information and your sister's going to get killed. And, you know, Anthony's in this hospital in those hallways or walking in and out of it with this same type of, you know, looming danger. And, and then, of course, there are the factual stories of, you know, when they go into the bar and Frankie Five Angels and, you know, they try to kill him and they shoot the cop. That's verbatim what happened with Larry Gallo at the Sahara Lounge. It's a Columbo. All of this, those stories came from real Columbo crime. And Puzo admits to this, you know, he's reading the papers and taking that and making it part of the 1940s crime era versus the 1960s crime era. So it's really eerie to look at that. But the tragedy part of it all, you know, it's just uh, for Joe Columbo's life, that was one of the most I hate to say it, but one of the most interesting aspects of that story is that the beginning is so juicy, the middle is so juicy, and then the ending is such a great tragedy. It's just, you know, it's, it's a very dark ending, this, this book and, and the closing of the chapters, because so many things, the lights went off in so many different areas once Joe Colombo was, was shot. Let's talk about that. It's a great segue into the ultimate chapter, you know. I love talking about the topic of organized crime in a sensitive way and this Greek tragic way, because I, I often think of um, even beyond The Godfather, you look at a movie like Goodfellas, you know, and Scorsese does such a phenomenally dramatized job of selling you this really appealing image in the beginning, right? This very glamorous and the kids, get, you know, life is so much different than any other teenager. And then this camaraderie and this membership that you talk about and this great brotherhood that goes into it. And you're watching these films and you're drawn to the allure of it and the organized crime and the, and the criminality and the, the sin is sort of an, an underpinning that you almost can overlook because you're so intoxicated by it. And then somewhere Scorsese just, same thing in Casino, he just subtly twists the playing board and it's just this horrible descent into just incredible tragedy and mess and you can't get your way out and the whole thing is spinning on you. And uh, at the end, you realize the glamour was just the sort of invitation to see the real tragedy of it. It was the temptation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really in a biblical sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the apple in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. It, totally. I can, I, and, and I think the interesting thing that I've learned from your book and from these conversations is you see a guy like Columbo who maybe he wasn't aware, maybe it was subconscious, but he was shooting for something bigger, something more impactful, something more socially impactful. He had this sense of responsibility to his community and to other communities, as we've discussed. And this all culminates in 
the second Unity Day in 1971, which we're acknowledging as the 50th anniversary as we put this show together. And, you know, I've had many interactions in my life. We've been talking about New York and all these people coming out to Columbus Circle. Because union organization was such a part of their life, I remember seeing photos now and I have my grandfather telling me about, you know, stores all over the tri-state area with signs in their doors, you know, closed for Italian American Unity Day, people being present, unions and mosques coming down and being there. I had a guy I was, I'm wearing now as we record, and uh, I was wearing one day on an event, my Italian American Unity Day t-shirt. Yeah, I saw the shirt. And uh, one of the guys who's a prominent Italian American that I worked with at NIAF, who came from Boston, saw me and he said, oh my gosh, like, where did you get this, blah, blah, blah. He said, I remember being a young man in 1970, 71, and they would come with truckloads of decals and we would hand them out around the community and everybody had them on their storefront window. Everybody had them on their car. It was, you know, the the young people were involved because they felt like they were participating in something for the first time. And obviously over the course of the three or four years that they were active in this, it grows, it gets national prominence. We talked about the cadre of politicians and community leaders from other communities present in 1970. So 1971 is the encore. Can I jump in one second? Yeah. I'm fascinated with it in a different way than you are. What fascinates me about it is they were World War II veterans, right? And they were first-generation-born Americans. They were the greatest generation of Italian-Americans who were the first to be born in the United States, who were the backbone of that day and that movement. But their kids were the ones that really began assimilation as into intermarriage. And to me, that moment in time in 1970-71 is like the peak of Italian-American identity, power, presence. I think it's the peak because their children, who are boomers, were much more assimilated, had not grown up with the amount of prejudice that kind of had given the greatest generation of Italian-Americans their sense of identity and otherness. And their kids, you know, left the neighborhood, moved out to the suburbs, got the graduate degree, married the non-Italian that they were in college with, played tennis on Sunday, didn't go to church, didn't necessarily, and didn't have the bowl of macaroni. And they were the beginning, their children, not all of them, but some of their children were the beginning of the assimilation and, and the decline in identity and otherness. And I just think that for them to create that organization, I think that a lot of them had this view that we will always be another in America. And they didn't realize that 50 years where we are now, the fight isn't we are a separate group that needs to be respected. The fight is we need to stay a separate group to preserve our identity. No, you're right. I think of it as the peak. Again, this this is why I'm so fascinated by it. It all fits into this amazing literary arc because, yeah, 1971, June 28th is in many ways a, a peak uh, an inflection point in the Italian-American experience because it's part two. You've had the success in 1970. You've had the 100,000 people out there. People are listening. Things are getting done. Don't forget, as Don points out, there's chapters now all over the eastern seaboard of the country and other parts of the country for the Civil Rights League. There's scholarships being put into place. There's so much evolution in terms of the sense of a community that had never really happened before. And it all in true Greek tragedy form, ends in a flash, literally and figuratively, on the rostrum at Columbus Circle on Monday, 28th, June, 1971. Don, could you walk us through the sort of slight differences between the 1970 version and the 71 version, what happens, and perhaps why? Because that's the great mystery of this thing. 
Yeah, and I, I just before I dive into that, I'd say to Patrick's point is that, you know, like you said, that time frame, one of the, one of the components of that time frame is you're saying these first generation Italian Americans post World War II. The post World War II part is super significant for the youth to understand because, um, and this is something that Joe Colombo experienced firsthand. You had Italian Americans who were home as Italian Americans were fighting for the United States and the Allied forces while Italy was involved from the Axis power side. So politics had a major play here. And Joe Colombo knew many people in the community within New York, within Connecticut, New Jersey, as far as California, that were being targeted by the FBI. There were, there was massive amounts of people that had their bank accounts frozen, that they were put on curfew, they had their radio stripped from them. So uh, to come home as, you know... So you're saying the World War, War Two enemy alien, because we just did a whole episode. It's so funny you should bring that up. Mm-hmm. But is that what you're referring to, the World mm-hmm. War Two enemy alien restrictions? Yeah, I mean, you have... Guys that are, you know, imagine this, just imagine, because there's cases of it. You're a brother and you go and you fight in the war and you come home to find out that your older brother, you know, had his bank account frozen because he's friends with a guy that's natural born Italian citizen. And the FBI felt that he was, you know, uh, speaking to someone. He sent a telegram back to Italy. You got to listen. You got to listen to this episode. Yeah, I definitely, (laughs) I'd love to hear it. (laughs) I, I think that, you know, Part of that, as we, we're going now into the Unity Day, is something that young people or people that are listening to this podcast need to understand that it's psychological for Joe Colombo and the FBI, right? This is PTSD to understand that in you know, 1941, 1942, as he comes home, he's already learned and, and respect that for the Italian-American community, the FBI is the enemy. Then fast forward to the Organized Crime Task Force, which is only set up for Italian-Americans uh, and the FBI and still seeing them and, and the struggle within the community, whether medical insurance or banking. and Yeah, but I think, I, I don't know. I had some of the other part, but I think also as a community, we didn't like other people in our business. So the FBI, if you had, you know, an FBI agent coming in, we also are guilty of a community as protecting criminals also. I would also think it's just a, a political standpoint, conservatives, which Joe was, don't believe that you need big government and government inside your personal affairs. So, you know, that standpoint is not even part of criminality. I think that's part of politics. And, and, you know, I just think that the world war two generation, and we could do a series on this. The world war two generation had a mentality of, yeah, he's in the mafia. Yeah. He's connected. Yeah. He he kills people, but it's none of their business. Mm. As if we had this tribal neighborhood kind of self-governing autonomy Mm-hmm. where they were our criminals and we'll take care of them or we'll allow them and they don't get involved in basically outside of our world and you shouldn't get involved. That was not a positive aspect of who we were. It's a conservative mindset. But I, no, I think it's Italian rural farming. I mean, I, we could do, I would love for you to come back on because I, I lived with my grandmother my entire life. She died at 75 and I was 21. And I had arguments with her because when the feds went after all those mafia kind of kingpins in the late eighties and early nineties. She would go ballistic and her response would be like, you know, why are they going after the Italians? Well, cause they kill people. <laughs> cause they're in the mafia. That's why, because there's not a Polish mafia. They don't kill people. Right. So we have people who racketeer prostitution, drugs, all these things that are illegal. And then when we, we settle scores by killing them, and you're like, well, why are they going after? Well, because they're Italian. That, and, you know, that's not the reason why they're going after them. If these guys weren't doing that, that wouldn't be a factor. 
So I also think that I mean, it was, was, it was happening. It was happening in Chinatown. You know, there, there. I, I could give you crime history and show you parallel that it wasn't just solely the Italian American community that was involved in organized crime. Yeah, but we would we dominate. I mean, like we were publicized. But we we also we also had a very big part. I mean, my father's Irish off the boat, right? The Irish had their own rackets, be it unions and stuff for cops who looked the other way back then and stuff like that. But nobody did what we did for better. I mean, when Italians do something, it's always to the extreme. If it's an excellence or if it's in a bad part. And I just feel that we as a community, she's go, well, yeah, were there other organized crime, nationalized organized crime? Sure. They were nowhere near what we were. I mean, look at the numbers racket. That was an Italian industry. Now it's New York Lotto. Yeah, that's New York Lotto, right? But, you know, mur- murder is a different thing. I mean, running numbers and, you know, whacking people, if you want to use the colloquial term for it, it was horrible. It was a horrible thing. And I can't understand how we as a community could have any sympathy for that or, you know, and we glorified, we glorified it in film. But I think you made the point, Pat, that is the most important one here. And it's going to lead to exactly why 1971 is such an inflection point, which is, you know, they call organized crime Cosa Nostra, our thing. Correct. And, and you go back to the internment and you go back to the difference between the United States pre-World War II and post-World War II and how this trajectory and this, this roller coaster of assimilation is one that we never really even thought of. Nobody noticed they were on it post-World War II, but you have to remember also how inward-looking our community was and how isolated our community was and how hard the borders between ethnic neighborhoods were and how it did feel like you had your own system. And, and, and to come from Southern Italy, particularly in the post-unification period where, don't forget, the church gets repressed. The state is now, instead of being in Naples, the state is now in Turin, then eventually Florence, and eventually Rome. These sort of self-soothing, self-set up systems of keep everything in, govern yourself, your own rules, because there was absolutely no state present. And in many ways, when we got here, because we were unwanted, we set up that same system in our own communities because don't forget, you know, in the origins of the black hand, there was no interest, particularly here in New York, of the, the state, the government, the police force to even come in and participate in cleaning this thing up. It was only Joe Petrosino fighting with the NYPD to even get the minimum funding and a few Italian officers hired to create the Italian squad to go in and address this. They looked at it as our problem too for 50 years from our arrival here. It was like, okay. We, we still had hired police back then and as constables and it was, you know, they were still, it was, everything was evolving at that time. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's an interesting time. And the first, I think it was uh, Union Cecilia was that first organization that you saw it went all the way to Chicago. It was the first national organizing of them uh, as a subculture of organized crime. And, you know, no one thinks murder is a good thing. And, you know, self-policing within a community, that's an up for grabs type thing because at, at the end of the day, uh, does it matter who, who the trials are by? You know, like uh, we vote and we've seen in current times, you know, how many political leaders who are supposed to, you know, be wearing all white clothing and have not a scratch on them for their resume and their daily life. And they've proven themselves the same to be as corruptible as, as a mob boss. So, yeah. you know, whoever's fixing what went wrong within a community, we don't, we don't, we're not seeing the vendetta murders that didn't happen. I think the most recent thing that we've had was just a disruptor was the Colombo wars in the 19 late 1980s. And those are just, you know, those power struggle wars happen in, in business. As a person who studies crime, I could show you this stuff that doesn't get publicized in so many different facets of life. Oh, sure, sure. I'm not in any way denying that. I just feel as a community, it's very personal. 
in the fact that I remember when Gotti was on trial arguing with my grandmother. Yeah. My grandmother called me a traitor. He's a hero. These men were heroes to the community. Yeah. But, but, but this, no, it wasn't here to my grandmother. My grandmother said, why are they going after him? Because he's Italian. No, they're going after him because he kills people. That's why they're going after him. Then this is not a guy who was an altar boy. And my grandma said to me, you're a traitor. They're going after him. I was like, no, you're defending him because you come from the same ethno background that he does. But he murders people. But my, my point is that the sociological trajectory of immigration into this country, particularly super other immigrants, which we probably are the most super other, right? Because the Irish are Catholic, but they speak English. We come, we look different, we smell different, we cook different, we talk different. We are a different religion and a way different version of the religion because the Irish are, like you say, pet all the time, Jansenist, conservative Catholics. We're out in the street following a statue with no shoes on. We must look like aliens landed from Mars. And the otherness being codified and the sense of like, you stay to your own, that was, in my mind, the only version of ethnicity or the main version of ethnicity in this country. So the idea that your grandmother's defining characteristic even more so than law and the constitution and civics was her Italianist makes complete sense to me. It makes complete sense to me because that was what we were encouraged to be. That was what we were allowed we, to be. We were, we, we were encouraged. No, we self-encouraged tribalism. Sure. And I just feel that we, we look for a million excuses. I understand anthropological excuses for people who went in. It doesn't exculpate them from their responsibility, right? I understand the temptation. The allure of the money and the power and the, and the lifestyle and the gumata and the whole nine yards tempted guys, and they fell for it. And we're sad for that, but it does not exculpate their responsibility. An Italian-American community will sit down and constantly go off and find a bazillion reasons of why we should have looked the other way. And then we went and we glorified it on film and then we made all these movies on it. And then we make jokes like bada bing, bada bang. Then we wonder why our proverbial Norwegian in the upper peninsula of Michigan or Minnesota assumes that everybody with a vow at the name is, is, is in the mafia. We created this. Sizzling summer entertainment from Italy is on Mediaset Italia. Tempt yourself with a brand new season of Temptation Island. Take in the wonders of history and nature with docuseries Freedom. Say ciao to a best-of edition of Italy's favorite primetime entertainment show, Ciao Darwin. Plus, new drama Mazzantonio premieres July 21st. It's about an investigator who tracks down the missing and who was once a missing person himself. Direct TV has the Italian TV you love. Get Mediaset Italia a la carte for $10 a month plus taxes or Italian direct package for $20 a month plus taxes. Visit directtv.com slash mediaset or call 1-877-912-2702 to learn more and to subscribe. World Direct a la carte service requires activation of a qualifying base package. All programming is subject to change. For new customers, equipment lease, activation, early termination, equipment non-return, and other charges and restrictions apply. Call 1-877-912-2702 or visit att.com for full details. I actually think, Pat, I think your view represents more of where we are today than where we were, you know, 20 years ago. Like I, I, in preparing for this episode and in the fact that we've not addressed these kind of issues in other episodes, I would assume, and I hope people write to us, because I, I love getting listener feedback. I would assume more people agree with you that like this is a topic of 
I don't want to say shame or, you know, we're sort of past it as a topic, as a community, then people who would agree with me that it has to be looked at with a more anthropological view. And I'm not, again, not excusing or sculpting anything criminal, but I think that, you know, like we reference Robin Hood, we have these myths and, and these histories in, in all history. But for me, I think the ultimate tragedy of it is the end of this story. And I don't think the story is complete for analysis until we've got the end of it. So I want Don to take us to the end. And then I want to talk a little bit about the evolution of the community after June 28th, 1971, because it's so important. And I've spent so much time thinking about this. So Don, walk us through what happens on Monday, June 28th, 1971. So I think we should pull back just a little bit right before that event and think about the turmoil leading up and Joe Colombo's life coming to that event. Because we're really discussing him as a figure and, and all the things that he did and where they led him to this day. So at, at the time, you know, you had a, a, the release of a, a disruptor in the Colombo crime family. Joe Gallo comes home from prison and, and says that he wants to make all of this noise. And, you know, he doesn't recognize Joe Colombo as a leader of the crime family. He's very, very vocal amongst a lot of the organized crime members in the community. And Joe had had a lot of support from organized crime members, even with the league. Then at this point also it starts unraveling that there's been so many arrests, right? And that the year leading from 1970 to 1971, Joe Colombo was arrested four times and he had never been uh, arrested and convicted of anything prior, except for there was a, uh, a contempt of court for not speaking. And there was also, he, he checked a box on a real estate application that said that he was never convicted of a crime before. And he appeared in court and pleaded guilty to a gambling ticket as a young person, but never believed that he was a criminal after that because it was a ticket. It was a ticket of defense back then. So here's a guy who has deflected criminal procedure his entire life, and now leading up to this since the, the rally, the, the FBI and COINTELPRO, um, which I'm not going to get too in-depth for, but it was an organization started by the FBI to go after political dissidents. Um, and it's all factual. This is all, you can pull FOIA documents. It was actually a leak that happened in 1971 where an FBI office, uh, hundreds of documents from, from COINTELPRO were released, including the Fred Hampton murder. So, you know, leading up to this and the arrests and the pressure that was coming from the Organized Crime Task Force, Carl Gambino did, in fact, speak to Joe Colombo and ask him that he needed to step down. And then the noise within his family about, you know, potential death threats from, from Joe Gallo and, and just, you know, community rumors. Uh, had Anthony, you know, talking to his father about, you know, what was going to happen at Uni Day and what's happening with the league. His wife pulled him aside. Like, I don't think you should be going forward with this anymore. And I, I think, like, what we saw, the uncompromising figure of Joe Colombo, he needed to compromise. And he decided that he was going to attend the rally, that he was going to show support for the league. He was not going to speak at the rally. And he was going to let everyone know that Nat Marconi and Anthony were going to be the forefront. And he was stepping down from the league that day. He had planned to do that. He had already told this to Carl Gambino weeks prior to the event happening. So there's all this spiral that's happening. And he even had a Bell's palsy event again prior to the to the rally um so there's there's so much happening around him before that day even begins and walking into that day again you have a, a massive support from the italian american community you have you know now you have Meyer Kane coming um you had uh, the gentleman from negro was coming um you had uh 
people from the other groups, I think, did come out and show support too, like Sons of Italy and Chow and whatnot. Dr. Thomas Matthew Kane, Basil Patterson was coming, uh, Mead Esposito. So a, a plethora of politicians, uh, a plethora of entertainers, um, all of your, your community organizers. And before you know, the event even gets started, we have the arrival of Jerome Johnson, who was part of a, a, definitely a, a, a masterful plot. It wasn't like this guy just woke up and, you know, the camera was rented weeks prior. The press passes that he had to get inside the press circle were given to him officially by the league prior. So there was definitely a, a plot in place leading up to this day that they knew this is where they were going to, you know, polarize the community. And, and that's why, to me, it has always felt um, like one of these government assassinations that all conspiracy theorists are fantasized about from both Kennedy's to Meyer Kahani, who was assassinated years later, uh, Fred Hampton, Martin Luther King, these events, they shoot through the human and they go right into uh, the source of their power, which is the community. And that's why it's always done in a public fashion. That's the main reason why also after studying crime my entire adult life, I, always dismiss the fact that this could have been an organized crime hit because I would just ask someone who knows organized crime, well, just name another organized crime hit that was done in a public forum with women and children surrounding the person that's being killed. And it was done by a shooter who comes from outside of one of the organized crime families. You know, they've always kept that within their own. It was a self-governing thing that happened. There is no other case of that. No one could ever cite one. So it sets precedent and it, fits more into the structure of one of these other shootings. So for me, it was, it was about the public killing what they wanted to do of Joe Colombo to end the league because the arrests weren't amounting to anything on, on the uh, FBI side and the state side. You know, I interviewed Barry Slotnick, who was his attorney representing him. And he told me, he's like, you know, none of those cases, if we had, you know, he would have, he would have had to do time for the perjury for purging himself on that application, which would have been a few months in jail. Um, he goes, but all the other cases, you know, testimony and, and discovery phase, he's like, nothing was going to stick. They were just doing it to try to discredit him. And the biggest problem was that it wasn't. Every time Joe Colombo got into the newspaper, like you were talking about your grandfather, uh, grandmother, Patrick, excuse me, uh, you know, and her support of John Gotti. I mean, at that time, all the old Italian women in the community and the Italian men, they wanted him to beat all these charges. And- 100%. They were rooting for him like he was an underdog in a boxing match. Correct. Yeah. So, so you know, that wasn't working, and it was evident that that wasn't working. So the FBI needed a plan. I believe the FBI, CIA, they needed a plan B. And plan B was, was to get rid of him. You know, this is like, you've seen this with corporations. You've seen this with a uh, band. Once you take the leader out, you know, you cut off the snake at its head. And, and that's essentially what I believe was happening in 1971 at, the, at that rally. The community itself, you know, women and children and, and store owners and laborers and all this entire Italian-American unit, again, coming out to show support and to be with one another because they remembered what had happened in, in 1970 at this rally. And they felt this sense of pride. Remember, this is parallel to the civil rights movement. Blacks are organizing, the gays were organizing. Their first gay pride march was on June 29th, 1970, the same day as Unity Day in Italian. Wow. So it's all happening at the same time. Yeah, that was when the first march happened. So they, they shared that date with them, where for the Italian Americans, our date 
no one really remembers what June 29th, 1970 was. We watched the league, you know, as it crescendoed so fast and, and reached this point where people looked at it as one of the most formidable groups in New York City politics. It completely was decimated by the shooting of Joe Colombo. And then, you know, all the aftermath in that, you know, people would ask, well, you know, wasn't he just doing that to take money? And, and you know, well, he was actually spending more money than he was earning at the time. And that's what also got him in trouble with a lot of the other organized crime figures because he kept on needing donations to help these Herculean tasks that he had from building a camp in upstate New York to starting breaking ground on a hospital in Brooklyn. The FBI investigated the league for, I think, two years after trying to find something that was wrong with the books. And there was never an indictment laid down because they, there was nothing there to find. You know, it was all very legitimate. If anything, money was being spent that they couldn't account for and even donation wise. So that's, you know, it, it was, it was really sad to see that, you know, Anthony and Nat Marconi and uh, Caesar couldn't keep this thing afloat after the shooting, but the shooting, you know, it, it became successful for the, for the other team, you know, whoever those, those men may be. Yeah. I mean, you make a great point. For some reason, I've recently been reading about the Kennedy assassination and uh, a lot of these events that you reference. It's amazing how compacted the period is that they happen, what's going on in the country, the changes in the country with these ethnic movements, with the gay pride movement, with this evolution of the idea of identity and politics and you know, the Vietnam War and all this stuff. And I find it fascinating that in this case, like you say, the sort of easy open and shut was, well, this was a mafia murder, but it's the most unprecedented one in, in history because you have a, a hired African-American who's, like you say, got press credentials to be in there. It's all plotted out. He follows the same trajectory of all of these killings that conspiracy theorists like to rally around, which is like this crazy lone gunman, why he would go out and kill an Italian-American civil rights leader or a mafia figure, whatever it is, nobody can really pinpoint, but it's kind of a nice open and shut case because he goes out, he shoots Joe Colombo, and he shot right thereafter, right? I mean, it's like immediately, I think. It, does, it doesn't have even minutes. Yeah. And then it's like a tie a bow on and it's done. Mm -hmm. Joe Colombo will linger in a coma for, I think, seven or eight years afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. uh, eventually dying in the hospital. But the league disappears pretty quickly. As a matter of fact, I should be fair, there is still a nonprofit in Brooklyn here, the Italian-American Civil Rights there League. Is. It, it's the same organization. It does mm -hmm. community programs and uh, very, very localized like you say, the head gets cut off the snake and mission accomplished for those who don't want to see this community become self-aware. But in some ways, all of us who have been active community leaders still owe Joe Colombo the fact that even though they were able to eliminate the Civil Rights League and uh, stop the progress, it's not really a stop in progress because it's only four years later in Washington, D.C., that the National Italian American Foundation is created in a meeting of people from all different aspects of the community. Obviously, you have people who've been active community leaders. You have priests. Uh, Monsignor Gino Baroni was really the impetus behind. He'd been working at HUD, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, uh, I guess under President Carter, maybe. But all of this stuff starts to come together, and you can't help but think that if there's no Joe Colombo and no Italian-American Civil Rights League, you may not get four years later a National Italian-American Foundation or all of the other sort of self-aware evolutions that came to the Italian-American community. I really do believe this was the first time in the Italian-American experience where people started to say, you know what, we really can be something of impact and something of consequence to this country. Our numbers are there. We're in important positions. 
beyond organized crime and the, and the power that that organization had. There were influential Italian Americans in every legitimate field, and I think they weren't even aware how much of a mass they made. And the only other time you talk about Italian Americans is like a voting block is, you know, Italian Americans in New York City being unified to elect Fiorello LaGuardia, and that was so radical. But that was a sort of top-down, hey, we need you, and he's Italian. This was a bottom-up, and I think it fundamentally changed our community. I really do. Yeah, it's you know, for me, Richard Capizzola, who was involved in the league on the education side, ended up becoming czar. You had uh, you know, all, all these people that were birthed from it. I'm, I'm taking away nothing from Mario Cuomo, but you know, his case even, you know, comes in 1970. He's been fighting for years to try to win the case against the 69 Corona homes, and it was when he finally got support of the Italian American Civil Rights League, and they were able to march down to the mayor's office and, and create a ruckus. And you know, we we saw it in the streets, you know, maybe not to the same effect uh, as far as like the looting and the rioting going, but the organization of people to try to change the way the government is, is running systems. That part of the systemic nature, the things that were actually happening, the fact that there were no representatives from the Italian American community that work in administrations in all of the city school districts. This was something that was systemic prior and they worked to change all these different things. And, you know, the way that ethnicity and insurance and banking and loans and all that for generations was, 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 you know, and I think it's part of how organized crime members rose to power financially is because while a lot of these immigrants, you couldn't fill out the paperwork to get themselves a loan and open up a florist, they would just take the money from a Shylock and show that they were enterprising enough to make this happen and make this work. So the, the entrepreneurial spirit kind of worked hand in hand with organized crime, you know, discuss that later. But yeah, leading, leading up to this, uh, there were a lot of takeaways. There were a lot of people, I'm sure, you know, you could get a plethora of stories and anecdotes of people who rose during this occasion for those 365 days and felt the power and, and used it as a platform for themselves to move into the political sphere, to move into the administrative sphere, to really understand that they are a strong foundation and deserve a voice. You know, it's a lot of people that left without any of the crime or, or any of the malice, the bad things that were spoken about this league. Uh, I've met so many people and we did so many interviews, just unfortunately in the art form of telling story, some of these stories weren't pertinent enough to make it into the book, but I think that we could really talk about all the accomplishments and the residuals that went out into so many different communities, especially in the Northeast, you know, all the way up to Buffalo and Connecticut. I mean, people were coming from all over to this event. It's really worth, and I know you are talking about the next evolution of this great book, and I highly recommend everybody go out and get the book. It's one that I read immediately when it came out and absolutely loved. It's just a good book, let alone being uh, so interested in the topic for me. But, you know, you're talking about the potential for a film out of this, the potential for a documentary, and with that sort of long form available where you can sort of take a second bite at the apple on this topic, I do think the impact that it had on our community is an interesting one, particularly from a documentary perspective, because like I say, there might not be an IF, there might not be these Italian American studies departments. I mean, who in 1970 was thinking about Italian American studies, you know? And mm. I remember in the article by Nick Pileggi, talked about my alma mater, Fordham University, was something like 60% of the population of students was Italian American at that time, and like only five faculty members were Italian American. So that whole thing turns upside down with self-awareness. And I, I just have to really believe that self-awareness might not have come as quickly without Joe Colombo and the Italian American Civil Rights League. Don, I got to ask you a quick question. Yes. Do you think that Colombo had any idea that his life was in danger, that he anticipated this could happen to him? 
it's hmm, a good one. Um, considering what I believe about him, you know, as an organized crime figure and how this event is running, the police president, it was the greatest police president in the history of the NYPD that day. I don't even know what thereafter, how much, because that insulation, you know, I, I guess a, a man that's aware of those surroundings and, and those dangers, you know, his father was murdered. I think potentially he knew that someone could eventually get to him. But here's a man who walk every day in his shoes and he's completely grounded by his family and his loved ones, you know, dinner and showing affection to his children. When you live in that kind of lifestyle and make sure that you, you live your family lifestyle in a certain way that maybe he was always prepared for something like that. He sat his son, Anthony, took him, took him on a ride when he was about 14 years old, maybe even younger, to St. John's Cemetery and he showed him the tombstone with his own name, uh, which was his grandfather. And he told him, he says, listen, you know, by the time I was your age, I was the man of the house. And, you know, I may not be around forever. So you have to always be prepared to become an adult at a time that you may not be ready to become an adult. That always stayed with me that I felt maybe even then, you know, 10 years prior to the shooting, Joe knew that someone could end his life but did he anticipate that that ending of his life would have been due to his political activism as opposed to his criminality? I think he knew he was on a, a bit of a suicide run when he took on the role of leading the league and starting the league. And go, I mean, this guy's at front of the FBI offices every Monday protesting. You know, like I think he knew that this was a suicide mission. So, of course, he understood the gravity of the situation he was getting involved with when he started speaking to. Uh, news report, Gabe Pressman and doing interviews and all this. I mean, it was, it was definitely somewhat of a suicide mission, but I think if you ask yourself, well, why would he do that? You know, is it to make it five bucks on every person that's Italian because they buy a pin or something? No, it, it was, it, it, he, he had completed what I told you earlier, certain aspects of his life and, and had closure on that. And I think now it was to get to maybe what God or whoever the maker was creating him for, which was to organize and to stop you know, the corruption and, and help the Italian-American community uplift themselves. But yeah, the, the looming danger had to always be there. I find that so fascinating. It's a, it's a fascinating concept. Yeah, because to... you have to ask why the guy did this. And no matter what you think about his criminal record, it seems an altruistic reason. Like there, there's no benefit for him personally. No, nobody likes the sound of their voice that much when you know you could be eliminated at any time for it and you're taking on this opponent at, at the federal government. You know, it's... And, and also to understand the dichotomy of organized crime at that time. Joe Colombo, if inducted to the commission in 1963, becomes the youngest person to ever have a seat on the commission, right? He's like Kennedy, was the same time, was becoming the president of the United States. He was the new school. So he was the one that kind of changed the format and structure where you need a full-time job. And soldiers and captains and what do you mean I need a full-time job I'm full-time this is what I you know Joe Colombo woke up every day and went to Cantaloupe Realty and sat behind a desk and worked on real estate deals and he believed there was a new formula for these guys so even when it comes to the structure of how he felt organized crime should have been for him to dive into the political or the civil rights activism sphere it's completely unconforming to anything that he believes in as far as criminality goes so this was a is a complete shift of direction for him. I dismiss immediately the stories of, you know, oh, they were taking money. Or, but this guy had plenty of ways to earn money um, that he didn't need to take from the Italian-American community and, you know, put his boots on and 
be there when they're breaking ground and building, you know, houses in, in upstate New York and, you know, all the different things that he did donating money to Pakistan when, when the earthquake happens, just, there's just too many events for this to have been something so quickly dismissed by news reporters or people who were just like, it was a sham. I can never swallow that pill that there's a sham here because I see the impact being in the community and studying the history. And I hope for those who may have had some rudimentary understanding of this, this person in this event, uh, this has been impactful. And for those who haven't, uh, I hope this opens up a, a new chapter and a much too underexplored point in Italian American history for them. So I hope everybody out there has been able to gain something from this and I hope they're going to go out and do their own research and get the book and, and learn more and look for more on this very formulative topic. So follow Don and make sure you know uh, where this story is going. Cause it's still an unfolding story and it will always be an unfolding story. And uh, I know from all of us here, we'd, we'd be happy to have you back on. So thank you so much for making the time on this 50th anniversary to be with us. Yeah. Thank you very much, John, Stephanie and Patrick. And I really enjoyed it. And I hope to be back again soon. Uh, very much our sentiments. I can assure you. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, anytime, any topic, we would love to have you back on. So hopefully everybody enjoyed this two-part special 50th anniversary of a fascinating chapter in our history. And we look forward to hearing from you and what you think. So from all of us at the Italian American Podcast, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. If you That's want your life to be great, see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano and your life.